Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for this good news that Christ is raised and therefore the resurrection is true. We thank you that you are a God who has secured our salvation not by our works, but by the grace that you have offered through your son Jesus. We thank you that you are a God who loves us, that you would go to this extreme to show your love for us, to prove your love for us. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a church and to celebrate this great news that Christ is risen and in him we have everlasting life. Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would minister to your people, that you would open the eyes of the blind and you would heal the lame and you would uh, bring hope to those who are suffering. We thank you for the way that your word encourages us and transforms us and shapes us. And we pray that your spirit would be at work to that end together this morning. Amen. Uh, Well, it is Easter Sunday, and uh, if you prefer, we can also say it's Resurrection Sunday. This is the day that the Christian calendar devotes to remembering the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. It's a wonderful day. It's the greatest of days. What day is like this day? Because if a man rose from the dead then the world has been turned upside down. And in fact, Christ is risen. But as I like to uh, remind our church uh, every Easter, as Christians, when we gather together on Sunday to worship, we are celebrating the resurrection every Sunday. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday because That is our reason for gathering together as a church to worship and celebrate and proclaim that Christ is risen from the dead and that he now, even now, rules and reigns as Lord of lords and King of kings. He's defeated death and he set us free from slavery to sin. And I can't think of any greater reason to gather than that. You know, people gather for birthdays, and they gather for holidays, and they gather for anniversaries. And This is the greatest reason that a people could gather together, to celebrate the lordship of Jesus over all things. The tomb is empty, the future is sure, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Christ is King. Grace reigns and life everlasting is available to those that believe. Praise God for that. So as a church, we've been making our way through the book of Peter, 1 Peter, together. And uh, although it's Easter Sunday, we like to devote ourselves to just the teaching of God's Word. And so we're going to continue in our series through the book of 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to 1 Peter And if you don't have a Bible, you can always download one and put it on your phone. Uh, I like to read from the English Standard Version, the ESV. Or at our welcome table back there, we have Bibles available. And we would love for you to pick one of those up. And you can take it home with you and you can keep it. We're going to read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. The Apostle Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, 
since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. Well, I want to take these verses out of order, and I actually want to begin uh, with a reflection on that kind of little poetic refrain there that you see in verses 24 and 25. This is a quote that Peter has taken from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 40, and it's actually kind of morbid if you think about it. This is a reflection on the inevitability of death. So I want to remind you of the terrible truth. Because the wages of sin is death, you will die one day. It might be soon. It might be in the next week. It might be in the next month. Or it could be a long time from now. It could be decades away. But in either case, your flesh is like grass. It does not live forever. Or maybe a better illustration for us in the desert where we don't have much grass would be to say your flesh is like the desert wildflowers. Maybe you made the drive between here and Chandler on the 347 within the last couple of months and you noticed the beautiful blooming desert wildflowers. The view was full of all kinds of vibrant colors. Did you see it? Did you get a chance? The green kind of rolling hills covered with orange and purple and yellow stretching between the 347 and the mountains. It didn't even look like Arizona there for a couple of weeks, did it? Our typically dry, dead, and brown desert landscape was awash with color like an artist's canvas. It was just magnificent. But alas, the color is short-lived, isn't it? Because the grass withers, the flower falls, and as the summer heat comes, that beautiful floral landscape will once again be plunged back into the desert landscape that we're much more familiar with. It'll be barren and dead. And so it is with your flesh and your bones. Someday your life will fade. Death will overtake you. And there's no way for you to escape that reality. You are perishable. You will die like the desert wildflowers. And the reason that I call your attention to this fact on Easter Sunday is because most people don't think about it. When was the last time that you had an honest reflection on the inevitability of your own death? People don't want to think about it. This is painful. This is a hard thing to consider. It's a fearful truth. But you must think about it. And you must think about this truth with the utmost seriousness that you can muster. Because after you die, you will step into the life everlasting. And the direction of your eternal life after you die will be determined by the choices that you make here and now. 
in this very short life that you have to live. Either you can trust in the atoning death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ who went to the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, and you can trust in his resurrection life to be your eternal everlasting joy and peace and hope. Or you can trust in your own efforts, your own works, And you will end up being cast into the outer darkness where there is no hope and there is no joy and there is no peace, only weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, Jesus really did rise from the dead. And if you doubt that, you can go do your research and I think you'll find plenty of evidence to prove that point. And since Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. Jesus died and rose again for your sake so that you would see this truth and believe it and turn from your life of sin and repent and come to God and receive eternal life after your flesh perishes and you go to eternal death or you go to the grave. Jesus came to save you from sin and from death. But if you reject him, if you turn your back on him, then the death that Jesus died is a death that he died that will actually condemn you even further. Because he gave his life as a ransom to pay your spiritual debt, and you, you rejected him. And you chose to pay that debt for yourself. And in that case, then, you have no salvation. You have only judgment that waits for you on the other side of death. It's condemnation and hell and darkness that wait for you there. And so, this is a serious moment. And I pray that in this moment right now that the Lord would make your heart very heavy with the weight of this truth. But I also pray, and I have been praying, that the Lord would make your heart light with the gospel hope that you too can place your faith and trust in Christ. I plead with you to remember right now that even now in this moment, death is approaching. You don't know the day of its arrival. You could leave church here and be in a fatal car accident for all you know. And when you go to stand before God in judgment, the only hope for your soul is Christ. The risen Lord Jesus is the only salvation there is. And without him, you have no life. You are a slave to sin and darkness and misery and death. And so don't put off for another moment what you know that you should do right now today. Surrender your heart, your soul, your life over to Jesus. He has conquered the grave. He has paid the debt for your sin. He has offered to you God's grace and love. And understand right now, understand right now, that because you've heard this good news from my mouth, from the scriptures here on this Easter Sunday, then you are now without excuse on the day of judgment when you stand before God. I've just done a wonderful thing by telling you the gospel, and I've done a dreadful thing by removing every excuse you might have. And on the day that you stand before God, you will not be able to say to him, I did not know, because you have heard.
Either Christ will be your salvation or Christ will be your condemnation, but those are the only two options. There's no third way. And since your flesh is like grass and doomed to perish, don't be a fool. Don't save for tomorrow the very important business of your soul that you know you must conduct today. Now, for those of us who have turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, faith, verse 22 speaks to us about our salvation and our calling. And it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, at first glance, we could make a serious interpretive error here if we're not careful. If we read this and we conclude that Peter is teaching that we purify our own souls by our obedience, do you see that? Then we would reach the false conclusion that it's our work or our effort that makes us right with God. Now, it is true that obedience in the Christian life is of the utmost importance, But obedience, the obedience that we live out as Christians is important as a response to the work that God has done. Obedience to Jesus is the fruit that is born from our salvation. It is not the reason for our salvation. Christ has saved us, and he has saved us for good works. Jesus shed his blood, the tomb is empty, Christ is risen, and our salvation is therefore finished by virtue of what he has done for us on the cross. And in response to that then, we should surrender our lives in obedience to Jesus, seeking to love him as we bear good fruit by his grace. But that's not what Peter is talking about here. The phrase, having purified your souls, is what's called in Greek a perfect verb form. The perfect verb form conveys a completed action. So hang with me here. What Peter is telling us as followers of Jesus is that the purification of our souls is a finished, completed work already. Now, here's what I would ask you. If somebody could peer into your thought life and your actions over the last week, okay, just go back one week, and if we could like broadcast that up on the screen here, would it show a purified life? Would the last week of your life look pure to those of us who were able to observe it? Of course not. You and I are both guilty of committing sin, and impurity before God over the last week. So how is it that Peter can use this perfect verb form here and describe the purification of our souls as being already complete? Well, he tells us actually, our souls have been purified by virtue of our obedience to the truth. Now, Peter is not saying here that it is your daily obedience to the truth that has purified, in a completed sense, your soul. Because if that were the case, then unfortunately, your soul would not be pure, right? Because you've not lived that out. On a regular basis, you fail in this obedience. And so, Peter has in mind here a particular transformational moment 
that he is referring to, a moment of obedience to the truth that accomplished the purification. So there was a moment in your life when you heard the truth, and in obedience you responded to that truth as a believer, and that resulted in your soul being purified. And maybe for some of you in response to the gospel that I just proclaimed a few minutes ago, maybe for some of you that moment is right now. And before you walked in that door this morning, you had an impure soul. And now because you've heard that Christ is risen and you have looked upon him and you have believed, now that moment has come and you have a purified soul. You heard the truth that Christ is king and you obeyed the call to humbly bow before him and serve him as Lord. And that obedience has resulted in, by God's grace, your soul being purified. And so what we're talking about, all of this, is the transformational work of Jesus done in us by grace through faith. Jesus is the truth that demands our obedience. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Scripture says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Jesus began his ministry when you read the Gospels proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come and so repent and believe. And this is the command. This is the truth that demands our obedience. This is the truth which has the power to purify your soul. It's the truth that Jesus spoke that no one is good. God alone is good. It's the truth which Jesus spoke that the kingdom of God has come. And so we must repent and trust the king. The truth that Jesus spoke was the invitation to follow him as master. Stop being your own master. Abandon your way and come follow the way of Christ. Turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 3. Let's take a look at this truth that Jesus proclaims, that demands our obedience. The gospel of John, so it's the long one, that comes after Luke. John chapter 3. Many people know John 3.16, but I want to pick up with you in John 3.17. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So disobedience that corrupts the soul is to reject Jesus and remain in the darkness instead of come in repentance into the light. And obedience to the truth is to believe in the Lord Jesus and to trust in him that through him and through his work, you might be saved. And this is why Peter can say, 
that our souls have been purified. He's not referring to our daily obedience to the things that Jesus teaches because that's still a work in progress. You're still trying to figure out how to obey Jesus. Instead, Peter is referring to the completed obedience that is the response to Christ when we trust in him. Jesus invites us, if you're weary and you're heavy laden, cast your cares upon me. And we respond to that invitation and we obey. We repent, we believe, we follow him. And by his death and resurrection on the cross, then our hearts and our souls are made pure. And without this, we are condemned. We have no purity, no salvation, no hope. Now turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 22, we see the result of the purification and obedience to the truth. It leads to a particular kind of life, a particular result as we follow Jesus. And the result, you see it there, is sincere brotherly love. The telos, the end, the purpose, the goal of our purified soul is that we might love one another. We've been saved out of our isolation from God and from other people into the fellowship of God's love among his people. So look, for just one moment, I want to speak to those of you who are in this room because it's Easter Sunday, right? And like you're a good American and so you go to church on Easter Sunday because that's like what Christian-y people do. You probably think that you are a Christian because after all, here you are at church and that's what churchy people do. But I want to speak a hard truth to you this morning because I care about you, because I love you, because I'm concerned for you, and I don't want you to be deceived. If you think that you are a Christian because you go to church on Easter Sunday, but you are not actually plugged into a church to regularly participate in the life of that body, then you're probably not actually a Christian. And the reason is because God purifies the soul for a very important, very specific, very particular purpose, as Peter says here. God purifies our souls through faith in Jesus so that we might put into practice loving one another. The same kind of love that we have received from God is then shared with the people of God. And if you're not practicing this kind of love, then it's probably because you don't have a purified soul. Now, you might say to me, well, Grady, come on, like I love people. Like, I generally just kind of love people. I'm a pay-it-forward kind of person, so doesn't that show that I have a purified soul? And I would say in response to you, no. No, you do not. And the reason is because Peter's very specific. He says the kind of love that flows out of the purified heart, the purified soul, that's the result of obedience to the truth. Do you notice what kind of love it is? It is love for one another. One another. Peter is not describing here a general love for all people. He's speaking about a specific love for the fellowship of God's children. 
the church. The one another refers to the body of Christ. And so if you don't participate in the fellowship of the church, then you cannot live out the kind of love that Peter says flows from the purified heart. To obey Peter's command to love one another, you need brothers and sisters in Christ. For this kind of love, you need brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm not talking about attending church. Because everybody knows you can sneak into the back of the church and, and you can avoid people and you can hide and you can leave without really participating. I'm not talking about attending church. I'm talking about belonging to the body of Christ. Being a member of the body of Christ. Attending church is a small part of that. But it's only a small part. I'm really saying you need to be folded up into the family of God so that you can be loved and so that you can love. You need to not be out there on your own doing this as a rogue agent. The Christian life is a team sport. It requires that you become tangled up with other Christians. And the truth is the reason why so many people don't want to do this it's because it's ridiculously messy, isn't it? People don't want their life to be tangled up with other people because people are a mess. I'm talking about the people in this room. I'm talking about me. I'm actually talking about you. People are messy. People are sometimes very ugly. They're sometimes mean and selfish. We can be guilty here, even at Maricopa Springs, of doing terrible things to one another. Sometimes intentionally, other times just because we're stupid. And if that's happened to you at a church before, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that has happened to you. The number of people who say, I don't go to church because, you know, I had this bad experience is tragically high, and I'm sorry. And that thing that was done to you that was wrong, I want you to just understand that it was actually done contrary to Jesus, not in obedience to Jesus. It was done contrary to Christ and not because of the body. And that's why Peter has to remind us and command us to love one another earnestly. We have to keep at it. We have to press on. We have to do it even through the pain and the difficulty that sometimes comes with this command. It's not optional. It's imperative. It's essential. And if you're avoiding the church because people are messy and people are ugly, I can kind of understand that. But I want you to grasp this, that the truth is you don't love people from the purified heart that Peter is talking about here. You're actually more concerned about self-preservation and guarding your heart and protecting yourself than you are about sacrificially giving to other people in a way that might cost you something. And that makes me suspicious that you've not received the generous sacrificial heart of God. Because God's heart is so sacrificial, Jesus went to the cross. And that's what he invites people into. He offers a transformed heart so that we can love like he has loved. And the good news is you're actually invited into this mess. Nobody walked up and left when I said this, so 
I imagine that maybe the invitational opportunity is still there. You're invited to join the mess. We would love for you to be part of it. It's not too late to get caught up in both the beauty and the ridiculousness that is the church. Right now, you can become part of the fellowship of Jesus Christ that puts into practice loving one another from a pure heart. We would love for you to belong to our church body. We would love for you to become a part of a Bible study or a small group that we call family churches. We would love for you to serve, to know the joy of serving other people. We would love for you to have some friends here. I have so many precious friends here. And we live in a culture that's so alone and isolated. Do you have precious friends? We would love for you to have some of those here. We would love for you to be able to gather with your brothers and sisters for a meal, maybe around their table or around your table or in a park. Actually, we'll even give you an opportunity to practice this kind of one another love today by inviting you to come to our little picnic over at Copper Sky after church. We invite you to come and participate and celebrate baptism with us. And maybe even be so bold as to sit at a table with somebody that you don't know so that you can love one another and get to know them. More than anything, we would love for you to give your heart to us as we give our hearts to you. God does beautiful things in and through people when Christians respond to this in this way. Now let me speak to those of us who do participate in the life of the church those of us who have this purified soul that comes through obedience to the truth. And I want this command to lay thick on you this morning. I want you to feel the weight of this. I want you for a moment to comprehend the obligation of the love that you have been placed under by receiving the grace of the cross. Do you understand that Jesus died to express his love for you. That's what Easter reminds us. That there's no greater love than that Jesus, the Son of God, would lay down his life for you. And his command is that you would be like him, that you would love others from a pure heart, just as you have received God's love from the purity of God's heart, that you would be a conduit for that love to go to others. And so there's absolutely no excuse at the church for petty selfishness. There's no excuse in the fellowship of God's love for bitterness or contempt or anger towards one another. There's no excuse among this body of Christ for us to treat one another in an unloving way. There's no excuse for unreconciled sin or unforgiveness, or favoritism, or exclusion in the church. None. Because the message of the cross is love, and hospitality, and warmth, and tenderness. We are a family called to love one another like Jesus has loved us. Not out of duty, but because we've been given an opportunity to practice love in the same way that God has loved us. This means that we're honest and direct with one another. We don't hold grudges with each other. 
It means that we forgive. It means we don't gossip about people. We don't speak poorly about them behind their back. It means that if we have an issue with someone, we address them directly to their face to deal with it. We don't fight one another. We fight side by side with one another to fight for the love that Christ has offered to us. We offer each other sincere, sacrificial, brotherly love. You're going to have to spend, if you are a Christian, you are going to have to spend eternity with other people in this room. You might even be forced to be like their roommate for a thousand years. So let's practice now the kind of hospitality and love that will be required of us in the kingdom yet to come. The will of God for his people is that they would be united together in love through his spirit dwelling in us so that we would be obedient and faithful, not being found stirring up division or strife among the people of God. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, and love endures all things, which means that love has a relentless commitment to the good of the other person. And so may our church be defined by that kind of heart, a heart filled with earnest love that flows from the purity of God's own heart. May it be said of Maricopa Springs Family Church that we are a people of radically sincere brotherly love. As we move into verse 23, we find all of this further emphasized. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, I talked about uh, a grammatical construction back in verse 17 where we find a cause and effect relationship. And I'm sure you don't remember that because who remembers grammar lessons? But we find the same kind of structure here in verses 22 and 23. So in order to see it, we could reconstruct these verses kind of like this. Because you have been born again, verse 23, love one another. Verse 22. So Peter just flip-flops it and he says, love one another because you have been born again. So the cause of our actions as Christians is the spiritual new birth that we have received through Jesus Christ. The effect is that we love one another because the love of Christ has been deposited in our hearts through faith. And the truth is, guys, we don't have the capacity to love other people like this. Don't you know that from experience? In our flesh, in our natural state as broken, sinful people, we're not going to love with endurance and patience, believing all things and hoping all things and suffering all things with other people. What we are called to do is love one another in a supernatural, divine way. And that requires a supernatural divine resource. It's not in you naturally. But that resource is available to you through the imperishable life of Christ that is now your life by faith in him. Peter says the word of God is living and abiding, living in us and abiding in us such that it directs our lives and shapes our actions. The Word of God is not merely some book 
It's not just the Bible like every other book. No, it's not dead or lifeless. No, this is a living and abiding book. The Word of God is actually the generating, life-giving power of God. God speaks at the beginning of creation, and it comes into being. When God speaks, what He says comes to pass. And so when God speaks His Word into us, it comes to life within us in the form of this loving obedience that's not ours by nature, but it is God's by His divine power in us. And God has declared us to be the body of Christ, united in love, filled with His Spirit, full of grace and humility. God has given us life through the resurrection of Christ, and that life generates love among the people of God. That's what it does. It's His love that we share because it's His Word that makes our souls purified and causes us to be born again. And although our bodies will perish and die, this spiritual life that we have through the life-giving Word of God, that remains forever. Forever. And so I say again that in the fellowship of the church, we are practicing for eternity in the relationships of love that we are abiding in together. Our natural relationships, do you understand this? Your natural relationships with your family and friends who are not believers, those relationships will perish just as your body will perish. But the relationships between the children of God who've been born again of imperishable seed they will remain forever because God has declared that we belong to his fellowship of love. Now, that last little phrase there in verse 25, it ties all of this together quite nicely. This is the good word or good news that was preached to you. The word that gives life. The word that abides in us. The word that causes us to be born again into an everlasting life. The word that purifies our souls and leads us into obedience. The word that bears fruit. Sincere brotherly love. It is the good news that was preached to us. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of the cross. That God sent his son to die for you. The good news that God loves you. The good news that Jesus didn't stay in the tomb, dead in darkness, but he rose from the grave. The good news that we're not only forgiven of our sins, but that Jesus has given to us his very life. The good news that you, even you, even you, sinner that you are, the good news is that you are invited to trust in Jesus. You are invited to follow him. You are invited to belong to him, to be his apprentice, to receive his life. This is the good news that your soul can be purified regardless of whatever you have done. Whatever kind of sinner and shame and guilt you are, you are invited so in a world bogged down by so much bad news, in a world plagued by news of wars and shootings and financial chaos and troublesome politics 
and immorality in a world full of sad news and tragic news and despairing news today on Easter Sunday, let us rejoice in the good news that has been preached to you, that you have been rescued, you have been saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Your soul has been purified and transformed by faith in Christ. Your relationship with God can be restored by the mercy of God. All of the terrible, awful effects of sin, they're all being destroyed by the work of Christ who died and rose. The good news is, although our sins made us stained red like scarlet in guilt and shame, Jesus has washed us to make us pure and innocent. The good news is, we are not guilty because the tomb is empty and Christ is risen and Christ is king. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this good news. I pray that if this is new news to anyone in this room, that they would hear it and they would humbly believe. God, I pray for the people in this room that walked through the door not being children of God. I ask that by your mercy, they would become children of God. That they would turn and look at Christ risen from the dead and they would believe and they would trust and that you would transform them, purify their soul as they respond in obedience to your invitation. And God, for those of us who do know and believe I ask that you would give us the grace and the mercy to hear this good news fresh again. That it wouldn't be common to us, it wouldn't be lost on us, but that we would truly know in our heart of hearts the incomprehensible love of God who has done this great thing on our behalf, giving his own son over to death and judgment that we might receive life and mercy. Father, we thank you for the cross, and we thank you that Christ is risen. Amen.